From Afters, in collaboration with FBI Radio, this is Radio Brain, the podcast about how Australia's top radio makers make radio. In this episode, it's Radio Documentaries, with Zasha Rosen chatting to Fiona Pepper. Hey, Zasha. Hey, Ryan. So, Zasha, in this episode, you're speaking with Fiona Pepper. She's a, a documentary radio producer at Radio National. What do you guys talk about? Oh, look, we talked about all sorts of stuff. She's had a really broad career. But I think one of the things we we really focused on was um, this one documentary she did for Radio National. And so she talked about how she put the story together, how she prepared for it, how she recorded it, and, you know, the decisions that she made at editing it later on. And we also talk about some of her career, which, you know, she started in acting moved across into making radio through through places like Afters and TAFE and even some time at FBI Radio as well, then on into the ABC. And, you know, she's still making stories like that, but she's still also presenting a new show at the ABC, a fiction show called Radio National Fictions. I was I was really struck in listening to this, hearing how she clearly works very, very hard to do her research and to do a good job. But she talks about like the insane amount of research that she does before doing a story as just like trying not to sound dumb. Yeah. And the amount of work that goes into an edit, which um, you'll learn is a very big part of radio documentary making. There's a lot of iteration and group feedback that goes from taking quite a lot of tape that you gather for a documentary into something that's very um, a refined telling of a story. She describes that as like just progressively making it less shit, which I really loved. I mean, there's a what's now a, a classic book about the radio-making process, like the creative side of it, by a woman called Jessica Abel. It's called Out in the Wire. It's actually a comic. And there's a part in it where she talks about, you know, you've got all your tape put together and you're trying to turn it into a, a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And she uses the metaphor, like she does this visually, of someone chipping away at a marble block until the statue comes out. So kind of like I think Michelangelo was said to say that the statue was waiting inside the marble, waiting for the um, sculptor to, to chip away everything that's not the statue. Mm-hmm. And like there's a huge element of that. Like you think you've got the shape and then you look at it and you're like, actually, that's really rough. And then you chip away at it again. And every, every revision process is about taking away one extra layer of stuff that is shit. So yeah, I really feel that. If this chat inspires you to take the next step in your own radio making journey, you can find out about enrolling in the Graduate Diploma of Radio at afters, that's A-F-T-R-S dot E-D-U dot A-U. You can also enroll in the Podcasting Fundamentals course and learn everything you need to know to get your own podcast off the ground. Here's Asha speaking with Fiona Pepper. And just a heads up, they focus on a documentary that Fiona made about the ISIS occupation of the city of Mosul. Some of the details are quite graphic and may be distressing. Fiona, thanks for being on our show. Thank you. I was wondering if you could tell me, maybe just start by going how you went from acting to radio. So I was working as an actor and not working as an actor. Uh, I was based in Sydney and I had this really bad job in Arts Harmon actually in Sydney and I kind of like worked in a factory, which sounds pretty bleak and it was, putting like stickers on tile samples and stuff because that was my mm. like job to pay the bills as an actor. And Doing such a kind of mundane job, I could listen to podcasts and I did and I listened to so much. And I'd always been interested in radio, but um, that 
was like, wow, this is, I can learn so much and this is, you know, you're just listening to stories all day long. And so then basically it was about um, getting to a point with acting where you don't have a lot of control creatively. You don't have a lot of control. And so it was about, okay, maybe this is a way of um, getting some control and making something that's mine. So that was when I went to, uh, you know, someone suggested that I go to All the Best and pitch a story. And um, All the Best is an FBA radio show that does kind of narrative nonfiction, a bit like This American Life. Yeah, exactly. And so I... I did, and I never made a piece of radio before, and I had a story idea, and I pitched it to Belinda Lopez, and she went, that sounds great. Like, here's a recorder, go and make it. And that was um, a very uh, kind of inspiring thing and um, empowering to be given that opportunity. I then went on to study at Petersham TAFE in Sydney, and I studied at Afters, and I did the radio course, and I've been at the ABC ever since. So we're going to focus on a documentary in particular that you made for Radio National. Could you just really briefly just tell us what the, what the story is about? So last year I made a program called Mosulai, uh, Life Inside the Caliphate, which was basically the story of this man called Omar Muhammad. He uh, was he's a young Iraqi man who was working as a historian um, at the university in Mosul when Mosul was taken by ISIS. It's hard to describe what life looked like under the rule of the Islamic State or the Caliphate. I mean, all I could see was blood. Their flag should be red, not black. And it was in the days, weeks after the whole city of Mosul was then being held by this brutal regime, as in ISIS, that he decided to start writing this anonymous blog about what was happening in Mosul. There was no information coming out of the city other than ISIS's information that they were putting out. So it was an incredibly dangerous thing for him to do to publish this blog. The sheer thing of of pressing publish on the blog was dangerous, but also he had to collect the information. So he was out in the street. It's not easy to talk to ISIS fighters. There is only one way to talk to them, is through religion. Talking to people, trying to put things together. Sometimes I'd be just a taxi driver. I just use my car as a taxi. Uh, I just work as a taxi driver. If I see someone like calling for a taxi, I would stop. Like in the taxi, they don't need to trust anyone. They would just talk. Did you charge them? Uh, you, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. And then he'd go home and he'd publish in the night. And nobody knew that he was doing this thing. Even my family, my mother didn't know. Not because I can't trust my mother, but because everything was dangerous around me. He eventually fled the city. It got too dangerous. He's found himself in Europe. He revealed his identity a couple of years ago. He was the guy behind Mosulai. And last year I travelled to Europe. Uh, He's pretty protective around his exact location. So I've had to honour that. I travelled to Europe and I spent the day with him and I interviewed him for this program about that journey, about creating a blog uh, while living under ISIS. Why, why was the, the story so important to you? Like, why do you think this is an important story, I should say? Uh, I think it's, uh, he kind of summed it up, really. He said, we hear in the news, we hear so much about why do these people choose to join ISIS? And he's like, but we don't hear about people 
who happen to be in cities that get taken over by these regimes and we don't hear about the day-to-day reality of these people's lives. And on top of that, it was just an incredible story, this young man who is just like risking his life on a day-to-day basis to put information out into the world about what it was like living in Mosul at the time. So it was kind of, it was like a hero's story, I suppose, without sort of being indulgent and putting him on a pedestal. His story was incredible. At the same time, it gave this kind of unique insight into what it was like for these people living in this city under ISIS. So that's what drew me to the story. Having said that, I um, haven't covered a lot of stories in the based in the Middle East or about, you know, ISIS taking over Mosul. And so that was me researching for months before I did that interview so that I would get the best out of that interview. And it's not a matter of me kind of showing, oh, look, Omar, I know so much about the history of Mosul. It's just so that I don't ask kind of ignorant questions or I don't skim over issues that might in fact be really important. So it's about really being very, very organised. Then my interview questions weren't particularly complex. It is essentially a who, what, where, when, why, how interview, but it means you can kind of go down certain paths. And in addition, I remember sitting on the plane when I was flying to Europe, kind of like learning lines, learning the questions. So, I mean, in a way they go into your brain because you're writing them down or I find they do too, but just like learning them so that I can have a conversation as opposed to referring to a piece of paper. And then at the end of the interview, I can go, hang on, I just want to check my notes and make sure that I covered everything. How do you go about starting to research something like that? It's sort of like you do all this research and then you throw it away (laughs) because I am actually like when I'm sitting down with Omar, I'm asking him about his story. Like I'm not kind of getting a tutorial on how exactly ISIS took over the city or however that worked. But I need that information. I need that foundation to then feel confident that I can just kind of be in the same space as this person that obviously knows a lot about Mosul and just not come across as ignorant. And maybe that's being a bit self-conscious or something, but I think it's like kind of doing due diligence of this is not an area I'm familiar with, so I just have to research the hell out of it so that when this person gives me their time... I'm taking full advantage of that time and that the story will be better for it. Beyond, you know, beyond just researching the history of Mosul, I watched every interview I could come across about Omar. He'd kind of spoken at a few universities, done a few interviews that I could find on YouTube, and I just took stacks of notes so that when I was face-to-face with him, I could go, oh, and what about that anecdote you told about blah? And then I've got it. How do you structure that to be prepared for the interview? Do you, do you write, like, pull out bits of it? Do you just read it and remember it? How, how do you do that? Um, I suppose I've got all the information. I've done all the research. Uh, obviously, Omar was writing a blog. I was there to talk about this blog that he'd written. So I read the blog from start to finish, like every blog entry, which was really key and was turned out to be really useful. I printed out particular blog posts that were particularly potent and I thought could potentially be useful for the story. And then at the end of the interview, I got him to read them. So on the 8th of December, 2017, he wrote this. I can't be anonymous anymore. 
I am 30 years old. My name is Omar Muhammad, and I am a scholar. I told my mother that her Omar is Mosul Eye. She cried, wished she was close to me to give me a hug. She said, I knew there was something going on with you. You know, the stakes were particularly high for that interview because I was going to Europe. We had one day where he was available. When I touched down in Europe, he was hesitant to give me his address. Um, mm. So, it, it, like, it was kind of like at any point this story could fall over. And I was, like, a bit on edge, you know, like I'm driving to the airport and he's texting me going, like, are you sure that we have to do the interview in my apartment? Could we do it somewhere else? And I'm like, uh. and that's the thing with these, this is what I learned early when I started making radio documentaries when they're very personal is, like, you're engaging in this verbal agreement with someone. It can fall apart at any moment. You need them more than they need you, if that makes sense. Like, if you're trying to interview someone about something very personal that happened to them, um, which is maybe been damaging, they don't need to talk to you and you've just convinced them to talk. And, and then they might think on it and then go, actually, I've decided not to talk to you. So you kind of do this dance with people. You know, in terms of all the variables, you can look after your own. Like, you can be very well researched. You can have your questions ready to go. You're very organised because there's so many other things that could fall over. So you, you need to be able to grab that opportunity in, in like the two seconds that you have it. Yeah. So how how much to plan did things go on the day when you interviewed him? Oh, it was actually great. It was a really great day. Like it was long. Yeah, we chatted for about seven hours or something. And then my next, you know, after the recording is kind of like, okay, so I've got seven hours of tape uh, on an SD card and this is the only copy I've got, you know. So then you start think mm. you start stressing about how to back this stuff up, which you know isn't is mundane, but it's also like you, you could have had a really nice day with Omar, and then you lose that SD card, or it's corrupted, or you know, like there's lots of things that can go wrong. So what was the vibe like? Like, is is it kind of like I'm hanging with this guy? Like, it sounds like you, you get tired after time. We stopped and we had lunch and then we got back to it. But I think because I knew exactly what I needed, um, we had to push through, you know, because what we're talking about isn't particularly nice and it's harrowing, the stories that he's telling. So it is a bit like, okay, off we go. Like we're going to talk about living under ISIS and what I wanted to get with him wasn't broad brushstrokes what it was like living under ISIS. It was very specific, like very specific events of him witnessing, you know, the brutality of ISIS because um, this being specific is like key, I think, when it comes to making these stories, especially when you're trying to demonstrate what it might have been like to live under ISIS Um it's those sorts of stories that people go, wow. And that's regardless of the type of story you work, you're you working on. The being specific is really important. And did he, was he okay through the interview? Did you need to stop a lot? How do you balance the need to not press too hard on trauma with the need to get the story out with specific details? Look, I suppose at the top it's like we can take a break. And, you know, he's also like quite a 
like outspoken person too. So there would be points where he'd go, I need a cigarette. And you go, absolutely, and go and have a cigarette. Or if there's just moments where you're like, do you need to take a break? Yeah, you definitely need to measure that. And I also think um, although you're wanting to be specific and you're wanting details, it's not sort of in a sensational way. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to explain, but you just don't want to ramp up that sensation. You want the detail and you want a kind of idea of how bad it was. But in some some ways it can just be you can get an idea of how bad it was just through like him talking and then he just stops and kind of like makes this loud exhalation because he can't continue speaking. And, you know, that that is enough to illustrate that moment. It's not just cramming a story with um, nasty details, I suppose. I noticed that in the final edit that you included one of those sighs at a key moment. Yeah. What, why did you decide to do that? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't edit that sigh out because that sigh happened. And I suppose when you're making radio documentaries, you aren't sort of like editing something so tightly that you are editing breaths out and all the rest. But yeah, that sigh was kind of, he wasn't the kind of person who would get emotional, I suppose, but it was that that it, it, when I was in the room with him, when he's made that sigh in that particular moment you're talking about, um, it was like, wow, this, you know it's taken its toll and as if it wouldn't but it was kind of for a man who doesn't kind of show a lot that was when you went wow that's that's the impact i suppose this would tell us a lot about how isis was using the human beings as uh, objects to do its propaganda and they bring them to to behave them to execute them just to produce propaganda videos brutal videos that man was That man was the, the victim of ISIS, was executed in this brutal way while they were discussing the best angle to shoot the video. Like, the things I witnessed and the things the people of Mosul have witnessed, it's beyond the imagination. The next thing I wanted to ask you about is the edit. But just before we get there, I just wanted to ask you, so we're talking about seven to eight hours of tape. And I can imagine like, you know, people who are starting out in radio listening to this interview, hearing seven to eight hours of tape for a like 20 to 30 minute documentary and freaking out. And I was just wondering, like, what, what's the normal amount of tape you might record for that length of interview? Look, I think people can get a bit like... <sighs> competitive or, you know, like I went into the field and I'm back with 13 hours tape. Like, and it's like, well, good for you. You've got like 13 hours or 12 and a half hours too much, you know, which is a very cynical notion. But look, you've got to be smart with the amount that you're recording. Like if you're making a 28 minute radio documentary, there's no point in recording like way too much. And I recorded way too much in that instance. But I think, again, because I was like, I've got one day, I'm in an apartment in Europe, I'm speaking to this man who has this mammoth story. And at the same time, I'm when I'm doing the interview, I might go home with seven hours, but like in my head, there are stories that he's telling that I'm going, yeah, I'm not going to use this. I'm not going to use this. I'm not going to use this. So, so you know on the day. Yeah. You, I think you kind of edit in your head. You know, you're not sort of going, yeah, yeah, wind it up. 
But like you actually have to let that person tell these stories because although they might not end up, you can't use it all, you're getting somewhere. Yeah, so you're definitely editing in your head. But yeah, like it's kind of an overwhelming amount of tape to deal with, but that's why I find the transcriptions really helpful because trying to navigate that much audio, just raw audio without anything written down or anything tangible is a nightmare. I need a paper edit. What's a paper edit? A paper edit is basically having everything that you've got in audio form on paper so that you can kind of figure out how you're going to chop something together. That's not foolproof, you know, because um, you might read, go, oh, wow, that's such an amazing thing that that person has said. And actually, like, the intonation at the end of the line might be a bit weird or the recording might be a bit weird or it just kind of doesn't work. It's a it's a kind of transaction, I suppose, jumping between paper and then the audio, you know. And, and ultimately, it ends up entirely audio. But um, I think when you're just like swimming in this swamp of hours of tape, it's really helpful for it to be on a piece of paper. And I guess like one of the things you're doing at this point is you're taking all the best bits of audio and you're kind of building the story around them. The best pieces of audio, but not necessarily the best pieces of audio. Like you're not cherry picking it because obviously there's got to be a story. So there might be parts of it that don't like really sing, but it's a it's a critical part of the plot. But there are definitely moments where you're like, I will use that. And, you you know, when you're recording, you go, I will use that. And so do you, do you then take it and stick it into the, the editor? What do you what do you do after the edit? Um, the paper edit, sorry. So then I start at the ABC, we use a program called WaveLab. So then I actually put all my raw tape into my montage. So I've got like, um, you know, multiple tracks and I put all my tape in. But what I do, and quite a few people do this, is um, because I've done the transcription, I've got the time codes of when things are said. I'll have like a clean montage, but at the hour point, because obviously the program's only 28 minutes, so like... I'm clean at one hour, if this makes sense. And on the one hour mark, I put all my raw tape so that I can jump between grabbing bits and dropping them into the montage. And the um, time codes are still relevant from the transcriptions that I've made. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you've got them all kind of on one side of the editor and you've got them offset by an hour. So like five minutes in is an hour and five minutes in. And then you, you take that bit and put it in the main bit of the editing. Yeah. And so I know where I can find everything. And so do you then kind of lay in some narration? What do you do once you've got some of the audio in order? Uh, look, the scripting, like I I have my um, montage open with all my raw tape sitting at one end and I have a Word document and that's just like you're just writing script, finding audio, dropping it in, like it, it all works simultaneously. And, and at this point, do you start showing it to other people? When, when do other people become part of the editing process for you? Oh, uh, look... I talk about it a lot, but I think sometimes if you bring someone in too early, it can be too messy. The conversations I had around Moseley was, do you think I need to get other talent to balance out my main talent, Omar, talking to people about that? But it's not sort of dragging them in to listen to audio because that's kind of too early on. It's when I've got a skeleton that I can get people to start listening. Um, I think if you're really struggling then obviously get someone in to listen. But, you know, like I'd made a few documentaries at this point and so 
I felt kind of confident for me to just like dig deep and get busy and then obviously bring people in to listen. Did, did you feel lost or did you feel like you knew where you were going by the time? Oh, you no, were... you definitely feel lost. Like you definitely feel lost. And then when you get someone to come in and listen to it for the first time, you're kind of like, mm, is it okay? Uh. And obviously you're not just trying to get validation. It's about does it make sense? And another big part of that process was I worked with a composer because the interview was in a room with a man, um, but he was talking about pretty incredible stuff. Uh, so building up that sound. So I, in addition to working with a composer who was making music that was relevant to the piece, I was also like finding street sounds of Mosul or like calls to prayer or, you know, other things that just might be useful to the edit as well, going, I think that would work there and I think that would work there. Because at the ABC... At the end of an edit process, that we then have a three-day mix process with a sound engineer. And, um, you know, you're not just like chopping up an interview, a bare bones interview, and then going, hey, can you make the, like, do the sound design? Like the sound design happens as you're editing the audio. Like they work in tandem. And a lot of the other elements you used, it sounds like you wanted to use them to balance just one guy talking in a room to give it more of a sense of space. Yeah, but also to build that picture. I mean, it's a balance. He's obviously speaking in hindsight, like he's reflecting. So you don't want to be deceitful and make it sound like it's happening in real time. And you don't want to kind of do these like weird recreations, but you also want to paint that picture. So I think there's a fine balance to to find. And also like... Omar sent me a lot of recordings as well that he'd made on his phone that made it into the piece as well. So you're not only editing this thing, but you're like getting music and you're getting archival content and running a lot of things in. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you know when it was done? Oh, look, you don't really know when it's done. You've just got a deadline. So, you know... Someone said to me the other day, you just, um, you're just working to make something less shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that's kind of true. Like it's never, it's never done because then you listen and you go, oh, I wish I didn't include that. Or so you just work up until the point where you then are booked in to work with a sound engineer to make it less shit and getting people to listen to it and uh, you know, different people, like, because this was set in, this was a program in the Middle East, I was kind of like out of my depth. I got some really great journos from RN to listen and go, is this clear? Is that clear? You know, as opposed to just getting people that tend to make radio documentaries for Radio National, I got a few different ears. And how, how did it feel when it was done? Oh, it's always nice um, and a little bit nerve wracking. And a one thing is always like, when the talent listens, you know, you don't need their praise, but you kind of want them to think that you've done a good job, like you've done a fair job, if that makes sense. Because it's not an exercise in sort of being like, this man's incredible, or but you want them not to think that you've kind of butchered their story. or And so it's always nice when you hear back from people and they go, yeah, I really, I think you did a really good job. You go, ah. Oh, thank God. Because obviously it's been quite a few weeks has passed since you were sitting in that room doing that interview. So that's always a nice feeling. 
So how, how useful was your education, both TAFE and afters, to, to getting you into radio? Uh, very much so. You know, like at the end of my time at afters, my work experience was at um, Radio National producing on Life Matters. It was like a five-day work experience. Then I got a job there and it was just doing casual work, but I haven't left the ABC since. And I've been very lucky, but I also have um, put myself out there. You know, when I was at afters, all the lecturers said, you have to be willing to go regional. And everyone was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Regional here is like working for maybe a country branch of the ABC or a yeah. news, small country newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Like, not new, like more just be willing to go regional if you're wanting to work at the ABC. And... And I did. And, well, you know, I don't deserve a trophy for that. Like, it was wonderful. But I think if you really put yourself out there and you show that you're enthusiastic, then stuff happens. So, yeah, not long after graduating from afters, I moved to Albany in southwest WA, which is actually where I'm from. And I work there as a rural reporter. And it was a wonderful job because you do everything, you know, like you host a radio program in the morning, you're out in the field recording interviews, you're back in the afternoon, chopping them up and putting them to the air the next day. You're publishing online, you're taking photos, you're doing everything. That sounds really fun. Yeah, it was fun. And it was in a field that I knew nothing about. And I learnt lots. It was fun. And then I made my, you know, I always had my sights set on Radio National. And so after a period, I made my way back to Radio National. And I actually worked in online for a long time. But I always wanted to make radio documentaries. So that was just something that I carved out for myself. How, how did you carve out that space? I know that, that the ABC, even the radio division can feel like a big place. Uh, yeah, it does. But you get to know people and you just pitch ideas. And the thing that I learned very quickly is people need content and the worst they can say is no. So just pitch. Even if it doesn't fall within your job description, like if people like the idea then it will happen. It's still a slog though. Like the ABC is a big place and, you know, like it's competitive and there's budget cuts and all sorts of stuff. Like it's not all peachy once you're in, but I think when you're in, like you have access to a lot of people and you can get to know people and get to know the kind of stories thereafter and find stories for them and make them. And you establish relationships with people and, um, you know, those relationships... You don't know where they'll lead. Has it been worthwhile? Yeah, totally. Like, this is my job. This is what I do now. It's a beautiful job. Like, when it all goes well, it's it's kind of you learn about aspects of history or people's lives that you wouldn't have um, known about otherwise. Yeah, it's a really creative job. I think the difficulty is that radio documentary, long-form radio is considered sort of expensive radio, so it's getting a bit squeezed. So it's difficult to get into this area because like 20 years ago, it was sort of flourishing. And like a lot of things, it's feeling the pinch at the moment. Why do you think this kind of documentary is worth pushing for? Because you, you get an insight into people's lives. I mean, any kind of documentary is important because we tell people's stories in depth. We, we hear a perspective that we might not otherwise hear. And it's also this beautiful craft and it doesn't require a crew of people. It's just you and the talent out in the field. There's a lovely autonomy to it. Fiona, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Um, if people want to hear your work, where should they go? 
I've got a website actually. You can go to fionapepper.com.au and all my radio documentaries are up there. Take a listen. The most recent one I made was a co-pro between BBC and ABC and I travelled to Vanuatu and it was a really wonderful experience. And, and I've heard it. it it's, it's a great piece. You should go listen. And you can find my FBI fiction show, Or It Didn't Happen, at fbiradio.com slash or it didn't happen, no apostrophe. Radio Brain is made by FBI Radio for Afters, Australia's premier screen and broadcast school. Enroll now in the Podcasting Fundamentals course on their website. Afters is a sponsor of FBI Radio. This episode was produced by Zasha Rosen and me, Ryan Pemberton. Our artwork is designed by Karina Aslikan. Music by Sound of Picture. Thanks for listening. <laughs>